I went to visit Richard yesterday, and I asked him the question I wanted to ask for a long time, can I come see your train layout? He took me down in the basement, and he had an HO train layout that was just totally amazing that he's put together. Um, he said he's been living in that house since the 1980s, but it was an amazing layout of probably 10 or 15 different trains, and some of them had maybe 25, 30 cars. They went all up elevations, and I imagine if you were to uh, put it to scale, just one or two of the loops that he had there must have been two or three miles long uh, by scale. It was an amazing layout, fun to see. Look at, with me at Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Paul is talking about the things that come to us from God the Father through Jesus Christ. And he tells us in verse 12, we're to be giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Now, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, we're beginning a series today, and it's based on faith. And so this first of the series will be that we need to have our faith in Jesus. Next week, uh, Justin will speak on faith in God's revelation and will for your life. Then I'll be back the following week. Faith that leads to hope. Then faith that ends in love, faith that gives way to realization, then faith in the midst of temptation, faith in our conduct, and then faith in prayer. So that's the goal of these is to help you in your faith and your walk with the Lord to grow. The more you grow in your faith, the more that you will find that it is just natural to be able to speak of your faith to other people. 
So we want to talk about today that we are to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I first started into being considering a Presbyterian minister, I started reading biographies of Presbyterian ministers that uh, were influential primarily in the South and primarily in the years following the wars between the states. And I read these things and I was just captivated by them on how all of these biographies began by talking about the background of the person, this Presbyterian minister. And sometimes they would go all the way back to a family that had come to the United States in the late 1600s and 1700s and how they had immigrated and what had gone on in their lives and various things. And then how this uh, person as a young boy became a Christian and was educated and was led to pursue the ministry. And I thought, it's really fascinating. These men had had great lives. I hadn't read many biographies, but the more I read biographies, the more I found that that was really quite normal. The greater the life, the greater there is the need for the explanation for what lies behind the life. Now, certainly, I think that we understand, as many people have spoken and books have been written, that Jesus is the the greatest life that was ever lived. And so since it's the greatest life that was ever lived, that requires us to have the greatest understanding of him. And a lot of times when I talk to people about their faith, they'll talk about having faith and faith in this and faith in that. And it might take them a long time. It may even take me pointing it out to them that they have not said that they have faith in Jesus Christ. And it's just, it's just a fascinating thing. And the reason I think that is, is they don't know much of the detail in the background to the person of Jesus Christ. So we want to talk about that today. When we look at the scriptures, basically the things that we understand about Christ is, first of all, that he had a pre-existence, an eternal pre-existence. Then we talk about his incarnation as being born of the virgin whose name was Mary. Now, after that, we begin to divide the life of Christ into two basic sections. One we call Jesus' act of obedience. All that Jesus did and said from the time of his birth to the time of his going to the cross. And then we talk about Christ's passive obedience, the things that he did in his passion and on the cross, in his death, in his burial, and up to the time of his resurrection. These are the things that he did, as it were, for us by taking the responsibility for our sin and our guilt and our shame, and how he took that to himself to pay its price and cost so that we would not be required to pay that. So that's the passive obedience. Then we talk about the glorification of Christ. We initially speak of his resurrection. And a lot of times, as I've said in the past, we kind of stop short right there. And really, the goal of the resurrection is that Christ would ascend 
and that Christ would sit down at the right hand of the Father. And then, as we say in our Apostles' Creed, and he will come to judge both the quick and the dead. But even there, it does not stop, because even after the entire eternal state of things is established with the new heaven and new earth, there'll be the necessity of Christ being the mediator between us and God. God is God and will always remain God, and we will never become God. We will maintain our position as, as human beings in the distance that is between the two requires mediation, and that's the role that Jesus will uh, exercise for all eternity. But as we look at this today, that's kind of the outline we want to talk about. When we look at this passage that begins in, in chapter 1, verse uh, 15, it begins to talk about this eternal pre-existence of Jesus Christ or Christ God the Son, and it speaks of him as being the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Now, I remember a day that my son John Knox and I, probably 10 years ago, and we walked together into a store, and we'd never been in this place before. I don't even think we'd been in the town where this happened. And one of the salespeople looked at us. We came in at exactly the same time, and he just kind of laughed. And he says, goodness, you all look just alike. I didn't do much for my son. <laughs> I thought he could see the future, and I'm not sure he liked it. <laughs> but uh, as I was saying to a friend of mine yesterday who looks about like me, I said to his mother, I said, you know, we have a lot in common. When we graduated from high school, we were both voted most likely to recede. And uh, <laughs> so I'm not sure my son cared for that. Well, yes, he's like me, but certainly he's not the same as me. When it says that Jesus is the image of God, it's not likeness as much as sameness. God the Father is God, and the Son is God. He is the image of God. He is the same as his Father, distinct from, but yet the same. And what Paul is simply saying here is something like was say at the beginning of John's gospel, and the word was God. Here's the same issue, that Christ is God, but he's eternally the Son of God. Notice the language here in verse 15, he is. It's not that he's become. It's not that he now is. He is. He has always been this way. Eternally preexistent, the Son of God. And so it begins to talk about then in the next verse the things that show his functions as God. And so as you look at verse 16, you see this one who is going to come as our Savior in the incarnation here are the things that he was about at this time of creation. 
All things were created by him, in him. In other words, in him is the source of all things that are, both in heaven and on earth. Now that's speaking of a comprehensive creation. What do we know but the things that are on earth or the things that are in heaven? This is speaking of all things. And then it's maybe this next words are bridge words, speaking of the things that are visible, the things that are heaven and earth, and then the things that follow, which are invisible, which are thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities. Um, What are we told whenever a church meets? Now, we're told where two or three are gathered together in his name, who is there? Christ says, I'm there in your midst. But we're also told things in 1 Corinthians about what we should be aware of when we meet as a church because we're told that whenever the church meets, who else is present? Who else? Angels. Angels are present. Now, I'm looking around, and I see some people that would like to be thought of as angels, but I'm not too sure. Uh, but, but, But the scriptures tell us that the angels are present when the church meets. Now, I'm looking around. I believe they're here, but I can't see them. What are they? They're invisible. It's not that they're... Uh, so small that they're microscopic. You remember when we, most of us, went through school, the small stuff was the protons, the neutrons, and the electrons, and now they've got things that they've come to understand that exist that are much smaller than that. Now, that's that's invisible to the naked eye, but yet when enlarged, it becomes visible. But the spiritual world is a world that is invisible. And we're told here that it is made up of a hierarchy. There are a hierarchy of things here that are thrones, there are dominions, there's rulers, there are authorities. Now you think of the angel. Michael was what kind of an angel? An archangel. We know that there is a Gabriel. We know that there are angels. We know that there are cherubim, and we know that there are seraphim. These are types of angels, similar to this. But we also know that in the negative side of spiritual beings, there is Satan or Lucifer. And then we know that there are other demons. And we have reason to believe that some of these demons are hierarchical, having more power and authority than lesser demons. All these things, is said, were came into existence through Christ. Of course, before the fall, all the angels were holy, and then there were those who fell. But even these owe their origin. Now, I'm just trying to say this is the Jesus that we worship because Christ, the Son of God, becomes incarnate in Jesus. Now, the next thing, if you look at verse 16, that I think is helpful is to look at the various prepositions that are used there. In him, 
This is that all these things come from him. Then it says through him. Again, the word is most naturally thought of in the sense of mediation. Through him these things came into existence and for him. They were purposed to bring him glory, Christ the eternal son of God. Now, from that time until this time, the eternal son of God has been about holding all things together. So this one that we call our savior um, is still functioning as the one who holds all things in heaven and earth together by his power. Now, here is a person who has an eternal preexistence, and we're told that in the divine plan of salvation that he took it upon himself to become incarnate. This was the Father's will, but he accepted this responsibility willingly, and for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and we're told that when Mary was to name the child that was to be born to her, Jesus, it was that God through him might save his people from their sins. And because he was to be born of the Holy Spirit, therefore the child that was to be born was to be called holy, the Son of God. And so the scriptures then begin to speak about a person who came from eternity, a person who came from heaven, a person who came from the presence of his father, a person who came from the presence of the angels, and he came to this earth. Now, if someone was to be born and you were to say, I know this about their background, and this one comes to be born as a man, what type of life would you expect the human life of such a person to be? And you would say, well, in a quite natural way of thinking, extraordinary. And so when this one becomes a man, we're, we're seeing from the very beginning that he was self-conscious of his divine nature as well as living in, as the son of Mary and of Joseph. So at age 12, he goes to the temple. He stays back. The parents go on. They come back and find him. He's in the temple reasoning with the people in the temple. And his mother says, why are you doing this? And he says to his mother, don't you understand? I have to be about my father's business, which was the business of the salvation of the world. So we begin to see this at age 12, an obvious self-consciousness of himself. Two natures, one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when he goes into his ministry, his active obedience, his active ministry, we begin to see things that we would expect. First, the opposition that comes from Satan. 
So after a trial period of 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan comes to him and tempts him, he defeats Satan. He shows the power of God residing in a man. Then there are things that begin to take place in which he changes water into wine. We say, how is that possible? He takes a leper and makes them clean. How is that possible? Well, what we're seeing is things that demonstrate the creative power of God residing in what appears outwardly to be only a human life of a male. But this man, Jesus, is doing these things. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing paralytics. He is uh, feeding 4,000 with just a few fish, uh, 5,000 with just a few fish. He's calming the winds and the waves. He's walking on the water. What is he demonstrating? Well, he's demonstrating that nothing that was a part of his, what we call, pre-existence was lost in his becoming man. It's not that his divine nature became less in order that he could become man, but that fully in this human person is the divine nature in the human nature in this one person. And so as these things in all that Jesus did, taught uh, all that he has done to heal, all of these things are demonstrations that this man is God, and he's here for a purpose. Now, the purpose wasn't grasped, and the purpose wasn't really appreciated, because when he talked about going to the cross, none of his companions, none of the people that he was familiar with, thought that this was a good idea. They all tried to hold him back from this kind of a thing. And he began to tell them plainly that he had to do this. These things could not fit into their ways and categories of thinking. They didn't realize fully who they were dealing with then. But Jesus, knowing his calling, you remember how he always said it from the beginning? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then finally he says, my hour has come. And he has come to do the Father's will. Now, I just want to come back for a second here and before I leave this point. There's not a table here where there isn't a broken heart about something. I think that we understand that. Most of us would say, well, give me the mirror so I can see them. I know that person. It's me. And, and we, we long for what we see from Jesus, and we should. But as we long, we should rehearse everything that we see that Jesus did during this ministry. What Jesus did in this ministry was to set up the ultimate realities, the true truth, the genuine things that you can bank on and expect about a life. The problem is you and I are just like the companions of Jesus who did not want to see Jesus go to the cross. Why didn't they want to go see Jesus go to the cross? 
For them, they thought it meant an eternal separation. Now, they were wrong. But it did create a separation because after the cross and the resurrection, there was the ascension. And he went out of their sight. Now, all those things that they had experienced, what did they want? They wanted to keep experiencing them. But the problem is this. The life that Jesus is telling us about, that he is setting up for us to have faith in, is not the life that is in this world. That's a problem. We are really stuck like glue where we're at. And many of us have many heartaches. But there is a place and there is this concept of a time, a time that will come. And in that place and in this time that will come, everything that Jesus demonstrated in all of these miracles are going to be realized in all of our lives. And in all of the lives of all of the people that we care for and love who have put their faith in Christ. Now, I was the dorm parent back at Bellhaven College, and I can't remember this one boy's name. His name was Freddie. But Freddie and this other boy named Chuck, his last name was Tabor, they lived the first door off of the lobby. So if you got into the lobby and you went down to the hallway, and first door on the right was the two's room. And they had Tabor and the other boy, Freddie's last name, and it said spare parts. And then it said limited. Because the one boy, Freddie, had one arm. And the other boy, Chuck, had one leg. <laughs> and so it was spare parts were limited in that room. Now, in all reality, our lives are just about like those two boys. <laughs> There's a lot that we're missing. There is a world where nothing will be missing, but it's not this world. Now, we look at all these things that the eternal Son of God who became man did, and we say he did these things. These things are history. They happen. And it's to tell us of this future world that we must accept by faith because the one who did these things taught these things. And where we receive the one, it's to get, cause us to receive the other. The physical healings are to create in us spiritual realities. And the spiritual realities are the realities that God in Christ is going to make all things new. What world are you living for? Now, I'm telling you, I deal with many of you whose lives are full of disappointment. And unfortunately, disappointment gives way to bitterness. And unfortunately, bitterness gives way to people shrinking. You don't find sh sh people that are bitter with expansive lives. You've got to get rid of bitterness to, to live expansively. But this is what we're looking at. This one who came to earth changed everything around him and told us that there's a world to come 
in that world to come is going to be realized in everything that we saw being mirrored perfectly in reality in that world. How's that going to happen? Well, I want to hit one last thing here, that when Christ ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. I was speaking the other day, I think to you as well, that I was dealing with some of the post-college age children in our church, and we were talking about what that meant in the resurrection. And the book used the word guarantee. And I said to them, let's read from a dictionary what a guarantee is. Now, inherent in a guarantee, why do you want a guarantee for something? For failure. You want a guarantee because there is the potential of failure. Now, do you think that has any application to the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, there's a better word, and so I just scrolled down the page to the word in the dictionary that said guarantee. That one's got a Y on the end, and I read the definition of that, and it says that which is laid up, that which is laid up in secure, that provides the assurance of everything that has been promised. A guarantee. Christ sat down. When he sat down at the right hand of the Father for the first time in the history of creation, a human person in the flesh was absolutely and perfectly accepted by God the Father. So much so that came into his presence and was given the privilege of sitting at God the Father's right hand, through which he is mediating to us all the absolute promises of a loving Heavenly Father that were demonstrated in the life of his Son that will be ours in totality because Christ sits at the right hand of God. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you that these things are true. We think of Jesus in the book of Revelation saying, write these things down because they are true. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he tells us, behold, I make all things new. Help us in this life, not merely to live in faith in Christ as a Savior, but in faith in Christ as God the Son, seated at your right hand for our ultimate perfection in a perfect world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.